so that you may believe. I am so, so grateful for the, uh, for the teaching ministry of our church and especially for uh, brothers David and Chad as, as um, they have walked us through John chapter 9 in what uh, the Chad called, uh, and this isn't half bad, I wish I'd come up with it, the three-act the three play that plays out in, in chapter 9. A couple weeks ago, Brother David, the first act, the miracle that occurred with this man who was, who was blind from birth and who received from Jesus his sight. And the, and the well-intentioned but kind of wrong-headed question that the disciples asked regarding the, the why of that. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Uh, and of course, Jesus' answer that the works of God might be displayed in him, not some cause and effect relationship that was predictable in a shallow way. Um, then, then in Act 2, this series of, of interrogations that take place between the, the man and uh, his neighbors, the religious leaders, the religious leaders and the man's parents, sort of in Act 2. And finally now in, in Act 3, we come to verses 35 through the end of the chapter, verse 41, as we see the, the culmination of this man coming to faith in Christ. The... Uh, Act two ended with the scribes and Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, putting the man out of the synagogue there in Jerusalem, saying, if you're going to be uh, resolved to give glory to this Jesus whom we do not like, then we are removing you and putting you out, casting him out of the synagogue. And that's the, the last moment in verse 34. So this morning we pick up John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. And when Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard him, or heard these things, and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. And what a grave and terrible statement that is from the mouth of Jesus. What a harbinger of eternal doom, your guilt remains. But not so this man who had been formerly blind from birth. I only have two points this morning. I want to talk to you first about the wonder of a soul saved and second about the warning of souls still lost. Now, just because I only have two points 
You should not entertain any hope whatsoever that I'm going to be through in one third less time. Um, forsake that hope right now and uh, just give that up. But we're gonna go, we're gonna go Roman numeral one and Roman numeral two. Roman numeral one, the wonder of a soul saved. Now there's no question that the sort of catalytic event that, that puts the events of this chapter in motion as we have them in John's narrative is the healing of this man. And there's no question, by any good definition of, of miracle, including the one Brother Chad gave us last week, what, what happens here is a miracle. <clears throat> this one who had never had any functional visual hardware at all suddenly gets the full set and it works. No doubt that is an utter miracle. But I, I submit to you that the greater wonder in this chapter, greater because it will last longer, this man's physical eyesight at some point once again failed at the latest at the time of his physical death. This man's physical eyesight by itself had no eternal consequence for him. But there is an unfailing, eternal wonder that takes place in the salvation of his soul. And let's, let's look at the wonder of a soul saved. Letter A on your outline, <coughs> pardon me, his salvation was prepared. His salvation was prepared. We see this, this sequence of events from where we join the man's life story, it begins with his healing. But you and I both know his, his life story has brought him. Even everything we don't have before John 9 going on in his life <clears throat> has brought him to that moment. His whole life story brings him brings him blind and, and blind and needy, if you will, to this moment. Then we have the healing that takes place. And then we have, in the very first conversation with his neighbors, we have the man able to give this as a, as a testimony. In verse 10, as he's explaining to his neighbors what has happened, he says, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now that's, that's remarkable for us, in, 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 at least in that it shows us this. That this, this guy has not had a 20-week training course in how to share your testimony. He hasn't got notebooks full of biblical information. What he's got is, is the passion and the clarity to explain what Jesus has done for him. He's not even saved yet. And he can explain with passion and clarity what Jesus has done for him. Now this morning, because most of us in the room this morning are members of the body of Christ at McGregor, most of us in the room would profess that we've known Jesus for a while. Some of us would measure that while in, in days or weeks. Some of us would measure that in years or even decades that we've known Jesus. Here's a man 
who, who perhaps on the very day he met Jesus, maybe it's a day later, but within zero to one days of first encountering Jesus, before he's even born again, he can share with passion and clarity the narrative of what Jesus has done for him. Can you? Do you share with passion and clarity the narrative of what Jesus has done for you? We, we see this, this movement. And by the time he gets, he gets a little bit further along, he's identifying Jesus in the, in the first encounter with the, the Pharisees. He identifies Jesus as a, as a prophet in verse 17. Now that's not all of the truth about Jesus, but it's true. A, a realization of who Jesus is is dawning in his heart. Then the conversation happens between the Pharisees and his parents. Then another conversation between him and the Pharisees. And in that conversation, they accuse him of being a disciple of Jesus. And he sarcastically asks them, do you want to join me? <laughs> and again, he's not a believer yet, but, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a bringing of things to a point in his life. His salvation was prepared I hope you're thankful for many different things this week. Thanksgiving is a good thing. But among the things, especially if you're a child of God, especially if you have come to faith in Jesus, I, I, I hope that, that you have taken a look at your own salvation, not just its present reality, but as you look back at the moment of your salvation, have you been saved long enough and grown in your understanding of the, the ways of God enough to look back and realize how God set you up, how your salvation also was prepared, that God so arrayed the circumstances, the people, the voices. The book of Job says, salvation is of the Lord. Are you grateful that he set you up? Are you grateful that his great heart loved you enough to set his affections upon you and to open the door for you to love him back? Remember, we love him because he, what? First loved us. And we get, to, we get a real look behind the curtain here as this man is being sovereignly set up for this encounter with Jesus. Not only was his salvation prepared, his salvation was personal. Continuing in verse 35, having found him, Jesus having found him. Now think about that. Jesus encounters him at the beginning of the chapter, heals him, but then through this whole middle part, Jesus is physically not around. This man is, is, is answering the inquiries of his neighbors and the Pharisees. His, his parents are answering the inquiries of the Pharisees, but Jesus himself has, has taken a step away. But here, at this moment, Jesus comes back around. Jesus once again seeks him out. Jesus came to him. 
The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, where Romans 3 tells us, among us, there is no one seeking God, Romans 3.10. We're not saved because of what we have sought. We're saved because Jesus came for us, as here he came. Second, he confronted He confronted. Jesus said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, Son of Man is Jesus' favorite messianic designation for himself. He uses it all the time. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And what does he mean? Does he mean merely human? Well, you can use it that way. Uh, The book of Ezekiel has dozens of references of the prophet Ezekiel referring to himself as a son of man. But when Jesus uses it, and particularly when Jesus uses it with the, the definite article, the son of man, Jesus is not pointing to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, he's pointing to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Specifically, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, the prophet writes, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Do you believe in the Son of Man? It's a confrontational question. Well, not only did he come and confront, but he also confirmed. The the, the formerly blind guy asks, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? I've got got questions. You you confront me with with this epic Old Testament character that will live and reign forever. Oh yeah, of course I would believe in him. Where do I find him? It's a great question. I I love that the word of God can survive any honest question you aim at it. I love that the word of God tells us everything we need to know for eternal life and for growth in godliness between here and heaven. Who is he? And Jesus responds, graciously and truthfully, you have seen him. I love that. I love that Jesus didn't didn't just say, I'm standing here. But to a man whose eyes had just begun to work. You know, this guy hadn't seen many people. He's seen his nosy neighbors. He's seen the self-righteous Pharisees. And he has seen Jesus here face to face. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He came and he confronted and he confirmed. Everything you need for salvation is standing in front of you. The Son of Man stands in front of you.
Now, what I love about, about the preparation and the, and the personalness of this man's salvation is it sort of comes back to that question that was asked early in the chapter. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, why? Why was this man born blind? And we look for what I would call sort of the, the answer to the shallow, why? Why? For example, if, if, if Pastor Russell falls and breaks his leg today, it'll be because he trusted his peripheral vision too much and got too close to that edge right there. And that why won't be difficult for you to see. And sometimes there are immediate cause and effect whys, right? But quite often there aren't. Quite often we ask why and the shallow why evades us. But there is always a deeper why. Jesus' answer. This, ha this is happening to him so that the glorious works of God can be revealed. In other words, the deep why is always God's glory and the good of his people. Always, always, always. Why was this man born blind? Because I'm going to do a glorious thing. And I don't think Jesus mostly meant healing him. I think Jesus mostly meant saving him. And so we come now to the big why of his trial, the big why of his circumstances, that the wonder of God in salvation would be made evident. Which leads me to the question, if you're not usually here this morning or, even, or usually here on Sunday mornings, and even if you kind of usually are, why? And if you're our guest this morning, an occasional visitor, uh, you know, there may be an easy answer to sort of the shallow why of why you're I'm, Well, I'm here because I'm, I'm, I'm with my folks. I'm, I'm here because my friend invited me. I'm here because, I don't know, I ran out of gas on Colonial Boulevard and I heard that you guys, you know, would at least you know, get me under a roof. Mm. Why? Please, please, for the sake of your soul, if you don't know Jesus, Consider the deep why. Maybe you're here because in Jesus Christ, for you as for this man, there is salvation in nobody else. That Jesus Christ, who would go to the cross and pay with his death the sin penalty that is due for your sin and would stand before the Father on your behalf, if you will turn from your sin and trust his death, believe in the reality of his resurrection, and cast your life upon him, turning from your sin and trusting him by faith, you can have eternal life starting now. There's your big why for why you're here this morning. There's always a big why. And it always points at the glory of God and the good of his people. Well, not only was it a prepared work and a, a personal salvation, but it also was a professed salvation. Verse 38, the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now, we've already seen in the Gospel of John that John will use the word belief and believe for something other than saving faith. In fact, he's done it in this chapter already. I'll point it, back, I'll point it back out to you in a moment. But here we see that there is, a, there is revelation of truth, and then there is a reception of truth. Lord, I believe, 
And we see it in a result of truth. He believed and he worshiped him. This is real salvation. This is real transformation. This, this is a life that has responded, turning from its sin, turning from its self-mastery, turning to Jesus in faith. His salvation was professed. And the wonder of a soul saved. What has Jesus done in your life to get you to this point? Maybe you were born blind. Maybe there's some other trial, some other tension, some other stress, and you wonder, why? Why? Might Jesus intend to resolve it on this earth? He might. Might he intend that you endure it? He might. But he intends his glory. And the door is open for you if you will turn from your sin and trust him by faith. That you can be as saved as the man in this narrative. But there is also a warning, the warning of souls still lost. First, letter A, the great division of humanity. Jesus speaks. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. In paraphrase, what he's saying is everybody, everybody in this world, except for me, Jesus, everyone descended from humanity is by default spiritually blind. You cannot see. Jesus will say in other places, they have eyes, but they do not see. We are not by birth enabled to see spiritual truth, and spiritual truth is ultimate truth. <coughs> Eternity truth. Heaven, hell truth. And you can only see that truth by turning your eyes to Jesus Christ as he is. And the great divide Jesus creates is between professed spiritual blindness on the one hand, I'm blind and I know it, Lord help me to see, or proud spiritual blindness on the other hand, I'm not blind, I see just fine as you stumble on blindly toward hell. Jesus is the great divide. Letter B, the godless, the godless defensiveness of humanity. Some of the Pharisees near him heard of these things and said to him, are we also blind? What's funny about that to me, and it's tragically funny, <laughs> is first, the facts are there. The facts are absolutely there. Look, look, at, look at this back in verse, verse 18. I want to show you something. You've probably already spotted it, but if you read too fast, you won't. Verse 18, as they, as they prepare to interrogate, the, the, the Pharisees prepare to interrogate the man's parents. 
The Jews, look at verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents. And then they conduct their interrogation of his parents. Now this is, this is not a difficult question. This is a reading comprehension question. If they did not believe in the reality of the miracle until they talked to his parents, what can be said after they talked to his parents? If they didn't believe it had happened until they talked to his parents, what happened once they talked to his parents? They believed it. They believed it. The facts were in. They are no longer failing to grasp what has happened. Now that's an important point because we, and we've talked about this a lot. There can be questions that need to be answered on the way to saving faith. There, there has got to be an unfolding of biblical truth regarding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on the way to saving faith. But ultimately, unbelief is not an intellectual struggle. These Pharisees conducted their investigation and validated to their own satisfaction the reality of this miracle. They believed it. They're just not about to surrender to it. Unsurrendered belief will send you to hell. Unsurrendered belief is not saving faith. You can run the textbook checklist of stuff you know to be true about Jesus all day, every day, and until you break before him and turn from your sin, trust him by faith, embrace him as Lord, you won't be saved. The facts were there. Second, the forgiveness was available should they only take it. Forgiveness was there. Any of these Pharisees who had come to Jesus as the Pharisee Nicodemus came to Jesus, as the Pharisee Joseph of Arimathea probably ended up coming to Jesus as ultimately the Pharisee Saul of Tarsus would respond in belief and faith when Jesus came for him. Oh, that they would repent. The facts are there. Forgiveness is available. But this moment, their, their rejection, their sarcastic defensiveness of Jesus reminds me of, of the moment when Jesus first began his public ministry. Now this is, not, this is not going to be on the screens, but if you want to, just you're, you're in the Gospel of John, go one book over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter four, the first message Jesus ever publicly preached, the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry in the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke chapter four, beginning in verse 16. <coughs> Luke 4, beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and took, 
and found the place where it was written. And this is from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, if you are poor, accept the favor of the Lord. If you are not if you are self-contained, self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-absorbed, and self-supported, there's no good news for you. Today, if you're a captive, if your sin has you in a stranglehold and you know it, if your life is the life of one who is a slave to sin, today, freedom is declared. If you are blind, I'm not blind, I see perfectly well. There is no favor for you. But if you are blind and know it, remember he says, today this has been fulfilled. And the synagogue was not full of physically blind prisoners who were from the poorhouse. It was a synagogue full of intact religious worshipers. But the good news is for the poor, captives, blind and oppressed. Pharisees look down their nose and say, are we also blind? Their defensiveness. Oh, today do not be defensive. Today the, the most marvelous thing that could happen to your soul would be the realization that you are poor, enslaved, blind, and crushed. If so, come to Jesus. If not, note the guilty declaration regarding humanity. Jesus said to them, oh, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. If you were blind, you'd have no guilt. I've come with the good news for the blind. And he's not talking about physical blindness. If you would just admit you can't see it and stop your, your blind, prideful stumbling toward hell, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Let that be a warning. Let that be a warning. And if you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Christ, I already challenged you once to consider the deeper why. The deeper why. In a universe where God is omnipotent, there's no coincidences. Don't continue to stumble pridefully and blindly through a life that could well end up being a life not worth living.
to an end you do not want to experience. Admit your blindness. Admit your spiritual poverty. Admit your need for a savior and cry out to him. Love him more than you love your sin. And you can be saved just as much as this brand new worshiper here in this last act of chapter nine.